one of the things that I keep loving the most about God. Um, there's so many things I do love about him, but one of the things I really love about him is that he is not limited to doing things the way that I would readily expect. Uh, I, when I look at the history of my life and faith, when I look at history of life and faith in general, one of the common things that I see is God working in ways that are outside the box of my preconceptions, outside the box of my assumptions. And that's one of the major themes that we see in all of Scripture, is that God is going to do things God's way. And even if they don't necessarily make sense to us, the results seem inevitably to be more creative, more effective, and more all-around perfect than if we had done things our way. And that's probably why he's got that whole creator of the universe title, because he can actually back it up. He actually creates things that are good, things that are perfect, things that do what they're supposed to do. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the way God chooses to enact something looks different to us. The results still speak for themselves, even if it may look a little different than what we were expecting. And one great example, I think, comes out of our reading today. Jesus is moving into the core of his teaching. He is moving into the, the beginning of his focused time of ministry on earth. And he has wisdom and power and authority to do anything that he wants to in order to enact this. He can do this any way he wants. All the strategies are open. All the possibilities are possible. He can market the revolution of the kingdom of heaven in any way he chooses. And he can select any method for the transmission and the retention of the gospel that he is going to start proclaiming. And he chooses a way that seems almost strange or even absurd at the beginning. He calls together a bunch of misfits and lives in tight community with them for three and a half years, investing authority in them to carry the kingdom of God into the world. Let's just pause and chew on this for a second, okay? Jesus' strategy for changing the world with the gospel involves starting up a small group. And it's not just any small group. It is a group of very different and sometimes very flawed characters. Okay. Just wait and see how long it takes everybody to catch that. Okay, um, yeah. I know we probably think of the apostles more in the roles of it. This was like the best, like, scary lineup I could find on the internet, okay? Um, and then I made it scarier, so, yeah. I mean, we, I know we think of the apostles in their roles after the resurrection and after Pentecost as like the founders of the church, but I want us to consider these guys just for a second as, as who they were and what their backgrounds were. Just think about where they were when they were coming into Jesus influence. It almost sounds like the material for a really good joke or a riddle or something. What do a loudmouthed longshoreman, two guys with anger management problems, a a a a right-wing terrorist, a corrupt embezzling government official, a habitual thief who you just know is going to stab you in the back someday, a a a chronic doubter, a sarcastic intellectual, your kid brother, and a, well, and, and a few other guys that are thrown in just for color, including like a, a farm boy from out in Caesarea Philippi. What do they all have in common? Jesus thinks they would all make really good small group members. Who would have thought? 
okay? Jesus thinks that they would be a really good part of his church. And I love that about Jesus. I, and I love that he doesn't just think that they would be good people to be recipients of the gospel. He thinks that they would be really good people to carry the gospel, to enact the gospel, to live the gospel. These are the people that he chooses. One, that should say something about Jesus' judgment. And, and probably then should say something about our judgment too, right? I think. But even more so, I think it should say that if Jesus is calling them to journey with him and participate in life together as Messiah, bringing the kingdom of heaven... The incredible part is not that he calls them, it's why he calls them. Look in, look in the passage with me, okay? There's some reasons that we can readily identify, okay? So that he can teach them, so that they can grow up, so that he is investing in them the authority of the church someday, so they can be sent out to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. But tucked in here is something else that I think is really important that we might miss if we're not careful. Look at the first reason Jesus calls them in verse 14. He called these 12 that he might be with them. Think about that for a second. See, because this phrase denotes that there is more going on than like a casual friendship or some sort of purpose-driven working relationship between Jesus and these 12 people, these 12 souls. Jesus wants to be in real relationship with these guys. And I think it's for two reasons. First, he knows the best way to progress spiritually comes from intentional relationships. He wants to be with them for their sake. See, lecturing about the truth and the love of God is one thing. Experiencing those things in life together is something else entirely. It is, quite frankly, the only way to make faith really stick from person to person and life to life. But there's also something else that Jesus knows. Jesus doesn't want just to be in relationship with them for their sake. Jesus wants to be in relationship with them for his sake. He knows that even he, Son of God, exists in relationship, in the context of relationship. And he needs relationship in his life on earth. The part of him that is Jesus of Nazareth, the 30-something-year-old Jewish man, needs people just like we do to combat things like loneliness and impatience and selfishness and frustration and sorrow and despair. He needs those things just like we need those things because the Lord, and especially as we were kind of talking today in our class on Hebrews, the Lord didn't just make him the Son of God. The Lord made him the Son of Man. He was given a perfect sympathy for us by being a man. And part of that means having that same need as we do to be in connection with other human beings. But even the part of him that is the eternal word of God cannot exist in isolation from the Father and does not desire to exist in isolation from the creation that he helps speak into existence. And so his plan is to unleash the saving power of the kingdom of heaven into this world starts through small, significant relationships. Starts through day-to-day -to -day life together. You watch the new church in Acts. 
that we talked about last week, and we're going to come kind of back into that passage of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 this week as well. You watch them under the direction of the new Holy Spirit-empowered apostles, and they do not miss a beat at immediately creating intentional, transformational community as soon as possible. They've been existing in Jerusalem as community ever since the resurrection and even before Jesus ascended. And now on Pentecost in, the, in this, this book of the beginnings of the church, they immediately connect the reality of being able to be in communion with God and His Son with the reality of needing to be in communion with one another. And like we talked about last week, they pursue a transformational community that involves and focuses on three emphases. Pursuing meaningful connections that mirror their connections to Christ. They pattern their interactions around being open to the change brought about by the Holy Spirit. And they cultivate a heart that is moved like the Christ that they follow for the world around them. They emphasize those three things. But there's more than just theory at work here. They engage in regular, practical things together as a community that reinforce those values, that reinforce those priorities for them. And that's the lesson I want us to look at this week as we explore this idea of experiencing life together as a body of Christ. See, the church quickly associates the practice of living life together with effective spiritual formation and the transmission of the gospel. And so they devote themselves to four things. Learning together, mutual involvement and responsibility, fellowship with one another, and radiating evangelism through these empowered relationships that they have. And you may notice that we call our small groups life groups, and that's really intentional. Okay? One, it's intentional because we believe that our identity as the body of Christ... And who we are as Christians is not so much an event that we participate in as much as it is a life that we live together. Our, our identity as Christians is not bound by time and space as much as it is bound by being who Christ created us to be. Okay? But it's also because we believe that a group of people that are striving to engage in the transformational community of the Holy Spirit, that that community will pattern themselves around the practices of learning, involvement, fellowship, and evangelism, and create practices that keep those things in front of them. Those rhythms are how we do life together in a way that creates the transformation of the Holy Spirit that God is enacting in us. One of the first things we see the church practicing together is this idea of devoting themselves to the teachings of the apostles. Now I want to step back for a second. Let's just suspend a few of our preconceptions on this teaching idea, okay? And ask this question. As if the apostles were following in the footsteps of their experiences with Jesus, when we think of the apostles' teaching, what do we envision? Do we envision most of that teaching looking like our modern lecture-based education models? Is that what learning is? Now, I believe we see a fair amount of that kind of learning happening in Acts. There's a whole lot of, of, of instances in Acts where one individual is speaking to a whole lot of people listening. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus as well. I'm, there's room for preaching in the church. I'm not knocking the preaching, especially since I happen to do a lot of it, okay? I'm also not knocking the Bible study. There's a place for the Bible study in church. 
But what I want us to realize is that the bulk of the teaching that happened with Jesus and the bulk of the learning that happened with the disciples probably did not happen in the context of a sermon or a class format the way that we think about them today. It happened a lot more like the words we have from Moses in Deuteronomy 6, instructing families and instructing communities on how to transmit the gospel and how to live out their faith. And it was things like, talk about it in the context of your life together as you get up in the morning, as you go walking on the road, as you sit down and eat together, as you, you know, rest and get ready for the evening. There were these rhythms that would come up. And my belief is that, that Jesus knew that most of the learning that was going to happen in the apostles' life was not going to take place in a well-placed sermon or a good Bible class. It was going to come from being around him and being in communion with him and watching him and learning from him as they go down the road together, as they journey together. If we think about it, most of the learning that happened with Jesus, it took place on the fly. They're all together, and a demon-possessed guy runs up to them. What can we learn about the kingdom of heaven right now? We learn that the kingdom of heaven is not worried about the demon-possessed guy, that the kingdom of heaven is more powerful. Okay? A synagogue ruler comes up to Jesus and begs him to heal his daughter, but then an unclean woman sneaks in line and touches the hem of his robe and receives healing before the respected synagogue guy. What does that tell us? How do we learn about how Jesus prioritizes healing and care in the kingdom of heaven? through that incident what are you learning right now pop quiz almost right some pharisees come up and say do you pay taxes like everybody else what are we supposed to do with that how is jesus going to respond what does that have to say about the kingdom of heaven most of the learning becomes situational and i think we as a church need to embrace situational learning again we need not wait until we are sitting at the sermon or at the Bible study to learn about Christ because the relationships that he gives us as a church enable us to learn all the time and I think we take that for granted sometimes how wide of a how wide of an education field we have in front of us that Christ has placed in front of us the Holy Spirit allows us to have eyes to see every situation the way that he would see it and to live as he would live and to respond as he would respond. And it's even better when you and I are doing that together than when we're trying to do that by ourselves. So how are we learning? I think it's also important for us to realize that this puts the apostles in their proper place in teaching. They are not superhuman, larger-than-life guys. They've still got hang-ups. Peter and Paul would adequately demonstrate that more than once in Acts and, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, okay? But they're allowing the spirit within them to bring the wisdom of their experiences with Christ into contact with those in relationship with them. We need both kinds of learning. We need the facts, and we need the theology, and we need the framework, but we also desperately need, as a people of God, to regularly engage in the learning of experience with one another where my life and your life interact and we see how Jesus is teaching both of us as we walk together. We need more of that. In order for that kind of learning to happen, though, I think we need another critical component. We need involvement. And this is not so much a plug for church involvement as it is to just say, 
do we understand that we're a body? Do we understand that God has created us to mesh with one another and that everybody is needed? Not because we're on a, we're on a plug for, you know, getting this or that project done or, 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 you know, keeping us all busy, but more just that I can't exist without the sum total of my body. My productivity goes way down if some of my body just decides to go on strike someday, right? You know. And, and that the pieces of my body do not exist outside of a relationship to the rest of us, you know? My, my, my hand doesn't just decide that one day it's just going to kind of take a week off and separate itself and go on vacation, right? Because it, it's not going to survive, you know? I mean, I mean it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out really bad for the hand, and it's not going to work out so great for the rest of me either. I mean, these are the kind of basic images that Paul lays out there in 1 Corinthians when he talks about, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Think about one of the really important things that Jesus does with this group of disciples. He immediately invests authority in everyone in his group. Even the weak, fumbling, not-so-put-together parts. Okay, He doesn't spend all of his time preaching. He sends them out to preach, too. He doesn't do all of the casting out of the evil spirit. He says, you guys do it. And they do. Or they don't. And then that becomes a lesson for them to talk about, you know, how do you do this in prayer and those kind of things, right? For each of the member of the twelve, the message of the kingdom of heaven became something that was theirs. It wasn't just Jesus' gospel to carry. It was theirs to carry, too. And I've often heard it said that the key to truly belonging in the community of God happens when people feel like they have a place of safety, a place where they can really be without pretense, where they can just be who they are, but it's also when they have a place of service, a place where they've taken ownership and responsibility for carrying the gospel as well. Paul puts it this way to the churches in Galatia in chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom... As family members of God, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for yourself alone. But through love, serve one another with the freedom that you've been given. How many of us tend to see church community as a one-sided thing where our primary interaction is to receive? For the early church, they were devoted to one another. We see that in Acts 2.44. To be devoted means to lay ourselves down in a proper place in relationship with those around us. I remember having a conversation with a friend at another church who was poised to take on some small group leadership, and he kept, like, he kept, like, you know, not, he wasn't really, like, full-on resisting me. He was kind of like, he was doing, you know, he's doing, like, the nudge, you know what I mean? You've done this in your conversations, right? Where you just kind of, like, mm, just kind of deflect it to the side a little bit, you know, you're being polite. And, and, and we're good enough friends that, like, finally I sat him down. I'm like, okay, what? Seriously, what's your deal? You know? Because <laughs> I can do that because he's my friend. Okay? And, and, and so I sat down and I go, what's your deal? And he's like, well, I just don't think I'm as good a teacher as you guys are. I just, I don't really, I can't do this the way you guys do. And I, you know, and started kind of giving me all that. And because I know him, okay, this would not be my pastoral counseling technique with everybody, okay? So just... Don't be afraid to come into my office, all right? I, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Because I know him, and because I know his personality, I look at him and I go, well, that's real, that's real prideful. 
And he, you would, you would have thought that I would have like hit him in the head with a hammer. He's like, no, I, I, did you not understand what I just said? I said, I'm not a good teacher. And I said, that's so prideful of you. And he was like, what are you talking about? I said, well, think about it. All of these people who know you and love you, they want you to be in this position. They think that you are in tune with what God's doing. They think that you have, you know, that you're listening to God's spirit and that you have, they want you to help them lead this group. And how prideful of you to ignore what God is saying and what all your friends are saying and everything and be like, no, 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 that's my, I don't have a place in this. I can't do this. And it really flipped things around for him. And I think it should flip things around for us sometimes that a lot of times are, 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 are saying, oh, well, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a leader. I'm not a, I, I can't get in, I don't really have a, you know, whatever that is. A lot of those things that we may even think are trying to be humble and, and saying, you know, I'm just kind of going to kind of protect the body from my screw-ups, you know. That's, boy, that's a really, that's a really subtle type of pride that injects itself into our lives and says, oh, no, 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 you know yourself better than the Holy Spirit knows you. Oh, no, 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 you know yourself better than the people that, that you've devoted yourself in Christian love know you. And how many times does that worm its way into our lives and keep us from being devoted to one another in the love of Christ? Because transformational community doesn't happen without this involvement. If the gospel is not yours to carry, how will it change you? Much less changing the people around you that you care about. And so involvement has to become that component of what we do as a church. If we're going to live, we have to, we have to pattern ourselves around the idea of, of everybody is needed. You are all a part of the body of Christ. And just because you're a foot and not a hand doesn't mean that you're any less. Or just because you're a part that doesn't seem as articulate. Sometimes I think we glorify some of these positions where we're up in front, you know? Like people go, oh, wow, Travis is super spiritual because he's the, he's the mouth of the congregation. We have a big mouth in our congregation. <laughs> oh, great. You know, I mean, whatever. There are people that do so much to keep this church going that you guys have no idea. But because they are down at the ground level and they, they care and they see and they work and stuff, they do the kind of stuff that I would never be able to do. And this church would not function without those people. And you will never see them up here. But they are a part of God's body and they are valuable. And you are too. And we need to learn to live like that again. Everybody is needed in the body of God. Everybody. The other thing we see that the church devotes them, themselves to is eating together. This is my favorite part, by the way. Thank you. Ah, fellowship. It is really about the potlucks. There's our scriptural precedent right there. Acts 2.42. No, I, I joke, but like in all seriousness, I really, really do hope that you are planning on sticking around for our welcoming dinner today for the university students. Okay, if you have plans, break them. Um, it's that simple. It's that simple, you know. The preacher told me to. Um, I'll, I'll, take the, I'll take that one, okay? Um, but my point is, especially if you don't know, if you're new here and you don't know people, I guarantee you there is no better opportunity to get to know us than to sit down over a plate of mac and cheese and just talk, okay? But I want us to realize something about fellowship, okay? 
I think we've kind of secularized these phrases in here about the breaking of the bread and eating together into two ideas. Having dinner or having the Lord's Supper communion over here and then just like hanging out over here. And one of the things I think is really, really important for us to realize about this passage in Acts is that, is that those things were not separate in the Jewish and Greek culture. If you think of the Passover meal, which is what the Lord's Supper evolves out of, there was explicit language and ritual, even in the Jewish culture, even before Jesus renovates it and says, you know, this is really about me, the Passover lamb. I am this, and this is about me. But even before that, there was this explicit language and ritual that reminded the participants that God was among them at the table. And the act of sharing the meal was sharing him as a group. And that's really what Jesus' language at the table in the Gospels focuses on, his presence with us as we share him together. And that wasn't a distinctly Jewish train of thought either. Even, even for the pagan Greek culture, this idea of koinonia, where we get this word fellowship from, it centered on the observance of divine meals, where the deity joined humanity at the table in celebration. It connected the participants to the divine, and it connected them to one another. For the classic Greek scholars, even people like Plato, who were, who were just like removed you know, philosophically from anything that we're talking about with Jesus, but you listen to them talk, this fellowship with the divine, this connection that they had, was greater than any theological understanding you could acquire. There was knowing about God, and then there was experiencing God. And where did experiencing God happen? It happened at the table with other people. We know deep down that to share in one another is to share a distinct piece of the one who created us. We know that. Case in point, I was a guest at a small group meeting this past week that started with a meal. And as we ate and we talked, someone noted how important it was to sit and just be together in a meal and how much better you got to know someone when you do that. And it's an intentional thing that happens when you choose to engage in fellowship. This word fellowship, I think, has lost some of its meaning for us. I know that my default definition is more like hanging out with Christian people. Okay? If you were going to go to coffee with someone from work, it's called coffee. But if you go to, with someone from church, it's called fellowship. Or bowling, or shopping, or whatever, okay? Whatever it is that you're doing, right? I don't think that's, I, I, think, I think that's a beginning, but that's not really what it is. I want us to imagine that koinonia, the fellowship in the Bible, actually is, is more of like a legal definition. When you come together on something, when two parties come together on something, it is like an agreement or a partnership, and you exchange things of value, it's collateral. And the, and the word literally is to have a share in each other's selves. I got a share in you, you got a share in me. We came together, and so now I've given you collateral, and you've given me collateral. And I got a piece of you, and you got a piece of me. You may not want a piece of me, but you got it, okay? I don't know. But that's what biblical fellowship is. That's what it is. And it happens when I realize that I've got a stake in your life, because you've given me a piece of your life and vice versa. 
And you think of all the beaut- and, and you think of all the beautiful things that will come with that, the care and the accountability and the encouragement and the persevering together through trial. True transformational community happens in the church when we actually start having a stake in each other's lives again. And I'm striving to be formed in Jesus not just for my sake, I'm striving to be formed in Jesus for your sake too. Because I have a stake in your life now. Because I want to see you presented blameless and holy before Christ, right? I mean, I have different levels of stake in in, in different people's lives. I mean, I want that for my wife so much more because I'm married to her. And that's like one of my primary goals as a husband is is to, you know, be working to help present her before Christ like that. But we all have relationship like that, don't we? Don't we? We should if we claim to have fellowship with one another. Reclaiming that idea of fellowship, I think, is going to be so huge because it doesn't just happen by proximity to other Christians. It comes because we start to intentionally see fellowship as the intersection of divine and human community again and the value that we are having in other people's lives and the value that they invest in us as a result. That's what fellowship really is. And it starts with a potluck, but it goes so much further than that, right? The last thing that we see is a community devoted to evangelism. Okay? And I'll be honest, this sermon is just scratching the surface of all four of these components. And I think we're going to be talking more about each of them in depth in the coming weeks. But let me just say this about evangelism. Jesus' plan from the very beginning is to spread the gospel simply by making the disciples he was in relationship with so attractive by who they were that they would just what they rub off on everyone around them would be the gospel he would invest in them and then he would send them out and they would repeat the process so we find the early church doing the exact same thing they've got a good reputation with the folks around them because they're lovingly naturally injecting christ into their regular areas of influence even if their lifestyle looks strange the people they come in contact with cannot deny that there is something good and valuable going on there. And because of it, people are naturally being drawn into community. At the church, I get all kinds of emails and I get all kinds of flyers that are marketing every manner of church-related business products. And a lot of them tip me off right away because they're addressed to the Honorable Reverend Hutchinson, which means they have no idea who I am. Okay? Right? But by far and away, the most marketed product that I see come across my desk is programs and processes for evangelism. Hands down. How are you marketing your church? Double your church size in six months. Use our proven seven-step program in order to increase your attendance. Okay, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's like business leaders know that churches are gasping for breath as the culture moves away from them. And so we'll try stuff. But here's the thing. In all of these attempts to regain our cool factor or our relevance with the world, I think we're missing something. Krista sent me an article this week by Rachel Held Evans. Um, and she's, a, she's, a, she's kind of a blogger for CNN on, on Christianity. It's, it's very, very good writer, by the way. Um, and in it, she made a really poignant observation about why people, especially younger generations, are not coming into the church. And she said it really succinctly. We're not leaving churches because we don't find the cool factor there. We're leaving churches because we can't find Jesus there. Okay? So tell me how you really feel about that. 
Um, but she says, like every generation before us and everyone after, what we really have is a deep, genuine longing for Christ. Evangelism in a transformational community is not about us finding the proper marketing strategy or process to reach those around us. Do you want to know what it is? It is about the realization that each of us has now become a mobile temple of the presence of Jesus Christ. We are a receptacle of the gospel, and it lives in us. And as we move around, we spread the fragrance of Jesus. And so in our relationships as a community, it empowers us to go out and be that influence. Where God has made us so magnetic that we rub off on other people. That is what the plan has been from the beginning for evangelism. And the only way that that happens is in transformational community. And so we must make ourselves about that type of evangelism where we start rubbing off on people again. We start actually showing them who Jesus is again. We start living that way again. And that doesn't come in a seven-step program. That comes in a community of people coming together and living the gospel out together. I've always been a fan of new ideas and new theories, okay? I really have, but... I'm, I'm weird like that, but I like to entertain certain notions and perspectives. And while that's fine when it comes to many things, it is an incomplete idea when it comes to the life of the disciple, especially in the transformation of the church. We throw around a paraphrase of the verse in James chapter 1 I talked about last week in our house a lot when schoolwork or chores or what have you are being assigned but not completed. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Let the word of your mom and dad go in one ear and out the other. No, no, no. Act on what you hear. Right? But that's what James says. Don't fool yourself into, being a li into thinking you're a listener when the word of God's going in one ear and out the other. We must act upon what it says. It's really tempting, and frankly, it's quite easy for us to keep the attributes of a Christ-centered community or even just the concepts of discipleship in the realm of theory. But God is constantly spurring us on out of the realm of idea into practice. He doesn't just want a church that merely hears about a group of people that are in community. He wants a church that does community together, that practices life together. And that's both the challenge and the opportunity that we have as God's people to regularly engage in the practices of life with one another. And so my prayer for us as we keep moving forward in this, as we keep talking about these things, is that we will be empowered by God's Spirit to not merely agree with these things, but to do them, to incorporate them, so that we can be true followers of God's Word together. May you be empowered to live the gospel of Christ with one another because that is what he has given you through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's stand and worship.